0: If you would, would you please open up your Bibles to Luke 24. It's the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. We've been in Exodus for about um, this whole year pretty much. And so this morning we want to take a little break from Exodus and go over to the New Testament. And we're going to be in Luke's Gospel chapter 24. And I want to give you a little bit of context As we approach this passage, uh, cold this morning. This is a story in Luke's gospel towards the end of Jesus' life and where we are Judas, he's already betrayed Jesus. The Lord's Supper has been instituted. Peter, he's denied Jesus. Jesus, he stood before Pilate and he has been crucified. He's died already and he's been buried in the tomb. And Luke tells us that on the third day, some women go to the tomb to anoint his body, but the stone was rolled away and there was no one in the tomb. And so these women, they go and they tell the apostles and the apostles don't believe them. And so Luke later recounts later on that day on the road to Emmaus, there were two disciples walking to Emmaus, that Jesus appears to two of them. And while they're walking on this road, he begins to talk with them and to teach them and that they uh, learn from him. And so Jesus, he approached them and he walked with them, but they didn't recognize him. And that's going to be key here in just a minute. So after some discussion, he asked, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is saying, Was it not necessary for the Christ to die? Jesus went on to explain how all the whole Old Testament pointed to himself. And this passage brings us to where we are today. He's still with these two disciples. in in the aftermath of what all he's taught them already so far. So if you would, would you please follow along with me? Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. You are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Since the reading of God's word would you please pray with me as we seek to understand it. Father we praise you for this scripture reading of this account after Jesus rose from the dead. Father just as He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We ask that you would open our minds and our hearts this morning to understand what your word says. Father, we wish to see your son Jesus, and we ask that you show him to us this morning. And Father, we pray this in the name of him. Amen. Well, when I was in middle school, I went about trying to get involved in various activities at my school. And so the first thing that I did was in seventh grade, I tried to join the football team. That didn't work out. Our coach got fired, and we didn't even get football pads that year. So I thought, well, maybe football's not in the keys or in the cards. I'll try out for basketball. And, um, well, well, they didn't need me on the basketball team, so I did not make the basketball team. So then I tried out for band, and everybody makes band. And so I did not get rejected from band. I became a band member, and I told the youth students all the time, band was basically our football team. We were the cool ones at my high school. But I loved band. Um, Everyone had a great experience in it. I had a lot of friends in it. And from time to time in band, we would get to go to different competitions and compete against other bands in the state. Um, And so there was one band trip that I remember to this day. It was when I was in eighth grade. We had a competition scheduled that required us to be at the school at 5.30 in the morning, which is really early for an eighth grader. And so what I decided to do that morning was wake up extra early so I could get a shower and get ready for this day on this competition. So I got up and I walked into the bathroom and I turned on the sink and I stopped up the drain. And while the water was filling up in the sink, I turned around to the shower and I pulled back the curtains and I turned on the shower to let it start heating up. And so while I was waiting for the water to get warm, I stepped into the tub and, and I showered. I used sho- soap and shampoo, as some middle schoolers don't today. Um, I did, though, for sure. I washed my hair. I used soap. But what happened next is the very reason why I remember this day very vividly. Um, I turned off the water to the shower, and I heard a noise that I was not used to hearing in my bathroom. And I thought to myself, what is that? And so I was listening, and the noise sounded like this. It was shh. And then all of a sudden, I realized I had left the sink water running while taking a shower with the drain and the sink plugged up. And so I ripped open the curtains, and then sure enough, there's water everywhere. Every single drawer in our vanity was filled with water. And then um, I had this sense of dread come over me. like uh uh-oh what did I just do and it felt like all the blood in my body was down at my feet and my feet were really heavy and I had to walk to my parents room at five in the morning to wake them up to tell them that I just flooded the bathroom and I needed to ride to school real quick so I could get on a bus and make it to my band competition and not be able to help you clean it up it was a it was a very very nerve-wracking thing to do to wake up my parents at that hour um But I want you to think about that sense of dread, that feeling, or maybe you've experienced the same kind of sense of dread of a similar event, certainly not as silly as that in your life. But that's what the disciples are feeling uh, in the aftermath of Jesus's death, in the aftermath of his crucifixion. There's this utter sadness, there's this utter dread that they are walking in the midst of. I mean, think about it. They lived with this guy for three years. Um, they ate with him. They, they dined with him. They slept with him. Um, they knew his mannerisms. They witnessed miracles. They learned from him. Uh, they knew what he smelled like. Every single day they were with him for three years and all of a sudden he's captured and he's crucified and he dies. And so it rocked their world. And we need to see this this morning or we're not going to completely understand this passage. And so three days later the disciples, they're still talking about what happened on the Friday before. Uh, Three days later, they're still thinking, you know, man, what just happened? And we we didn't read it, but in verse 21 of this chapter, the disciples said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to be the Messiah. So can you feel the despair in that statement You know, we had hoped that he was the one, but he wasn't. He died. You know, they've lost everything. You know, many of them left their jobs. Many of them left their livelihoods and their families to follow him. And then he dies. And so I love this passage this morning uh, because it speaks to us no matter where we are in life, if we're in the depths of despair or if we're in the highs of life, it shows that Jesus meets us where we are. And that was that opening quote there in our, sermon, in our bulletin today. That he meets us where we are, not where we ought to be. And so it speaks to all of us, no matter where you are. I want you to see that Jesus meets you where you are and he provides for you there. And so today in this passage, I want to see four things. Usually I do three, today I do four. Um, four things that Jesus gives us. The first is his presence. The second is peace. The third is perspective. And the fourth is power. So presence, peace, perspective, and power. And so we'll start with the first one. Jesus gives us his presence. And this is a narrative. And so what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be just basically walking through the text this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, it'd be good to follow along with me. We're going to begin in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So Jesus, he's he's walking down this road towards Emmaus, the city, and he's with two disciples. We only know one of their names in verse 18 of this chapter. Luke tells us that one of their names is Cleopas. And so the verse previous to these is the one where Jesus, he's teaching them about how all of the Old Testament pointed to himself. And there's a catch here, though. Jesus is teaching these two guys, he's walking with them, but they don't know that it's Jesus. They think he's just some random guy on the road with them who knows a whole lot about the scriptures and he is enlightening them. But they don't know that it's Jesus. And so Jesus, he'd been teaching them until it was too dark to walk any further. And they were so impressed with his teaching that they asked them to stay with him. Even though Jesus was going to keep going, he was going to keep going to the next town. And they said, no, please stay with us. And so the Greek word there, it means that they constrained him. That they, they, they strongly urged him. They, they begged him to stay with them. It's not just plain asking. It's, it's imploring. Um, I heard a post-game interview last night of a certain coach from a certain South Mississippi college where he implored the fans not to give up on the team. He said, please don't give up on us. But that's neither here nor there. Um, Jesus does what they ask and he stays with them. And so there's something about this guy that they're walking with that was immensely attractive to them that they didn't want their time to end with him. If you look down at verse 30 to 31, it says, When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. They, they, they see him who for who he is. They realize that this is Jesus. And what does it say? It says, and he vanished from their sight. Kind of a bizarre encounter here. They go into a home, they're sitting down for dinner, and Jesus he breaks this bread, and after the breaking the bread, the two realize who he was, and then he disappears. And so we think about this idea of breaking of the bread, and maybe our minds immediately go to the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper today. But I don't think that's what's going on here for a couple of reasons. One, there's no wine that we're aware of. But two, neither of these two disciples were at the Lord's Supper, and so they would have not likely known what this is referring to. But rather, the point that, that, that we're supposed to be driven to here is that their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. And so, so this makes me think of Ephesians 2.8. When Paul writes that faith is a gift, you know, the disciples, they were granted the ability to see Jesus. And so just as quickly as they recognize him, he disappears. Kind of bizarre, right? Um, Can't explain it. None of us can. But that's what happens. He disappears. It's this bizarre scene. And it kind of gets more bizarre later. And so the disciples, they start figuring out what just happened. They start piecing back the puzzle of what just happened the last day with him. And on this road to Emmaus, they're recounting the things. And then in verse 32, they reflect on it and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So think about that. Did not our hearts burn within us? Did, didn't you feel something too, Cleopas? Yeah, I felt it. You know, things are beginning to make sense for these disciples But here is what they ultimately realized. In the midst of their despair, in the midst of their doubt, remember we had thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel? It hits them. It hits them and it says, whoa, if Jesus is here, it means that he was really is the Messiah. That he was right about everything that he had said. Our hearts burned within us. Uh, Verse 33 tells us that the disciples, they do the next logical step, they leave at once. That's what in the same hour means. They leave at once, and they go and they tell the other apostles. And so I want to point out again, these disciples, they're, they're grieving. They're walking down this road to Emmaus. They're grieving. They long to be with Jesus. There's an intense sadness. There's disappointment because they thought that this guy who said that he was going to be the Messiah, he turned out to not be the Messiah, So there's disappointment as well, too. But I know from experience, and I'm sure you do, too, that in the midst of grief, we can be comforted by the presence of a friend or a loved one. You know, it doesn't have to say anything, but just their presence makes that grief all the more better. And so that's what I think is happening here in this passage. And that's the first takeaway that I want to make from this passage, that in the midst of these disciples' grief, Jesus shows up and he gives them his presence, You know, it was a much-needed presence, too. Now, he did open up the Scriptures to them. We're going to talk about more of that in just a second. But all that stuff is stuff that he's always been teaching them. I really want to focus in on that he gave them his presence when they needed him most. And so when we think about our lives, we know that Jesus is always with us, you know, on this side of the cross, Uh, Christ lives in me. You know, we'd say in in Christ alone that I am his and he is mine. We have that union with Christ. So we always have Jesus' presence with us. And so in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your despair, in your trying times, what does it mean to you that you already have Jesus' presence? To so these disciples, he, he brought peace to them. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But does it comfort you during trying times to know that Jesus is always with you? His presence is always there with you. So that's how he gives us his presence. Let's look secondly at how he gives us peace. So they go and they find the other disciples. And they tell them everything, everything that happened. And so it's like scene change right now they're with the apostles they're with the disciples and as they're talking look at verse 36 as they were talking about these things Jesus himself stood among them and said to them peace to you here we have again Jesus just appearing right he vanishes and then he appears so in this room with all the apostles they're telling them, we've seen Jesus and while they're telling them that we've seen Jesus there he is He's just standing among them. And, and I don't know how he got there. I don't know if, you know, Star Trek transporter room, you know, energize and he gets there, but through a biblical way. Um, or if he just quietly walked in through a door and nobody saw him. I don't know how and I'm not really concerned with how he stood there. But the fact is that he is there with these apostles. And so I think this is the most central verse of this whole passage. I think it's it's really kind of illustrating what this is about here. In this verse, when he stood among stood among them, and the first thing that he says is, peace to you. So we read that, and in our world, we think that's just like answering the phone and saying hello. You know, we don't we don't really mean it, it's just it's just a greeting, right? Um But J.C. Ryle, a minister in the 1800s, he wrote this about this saying, peace to you. He said, it implied that the great battle was fought and the great victory won over the prince of this world and peace with God obtained for man according to the old promise. The very thing that he told him was going to happen. And so it's not just a common greeting that Jesus does to these people. He's saying, I won. Victory over the grave has been achieved. And so this is a powerful expression of Christ granting peace to people who have no peace. He's he's granting rest to the restless. Remember, they don't know what's going on. (laughs) Everything about the disciples and apostles up until this point has been the opposite of peaceful, right? They're in hiding, they've run, they are um, going back to their way of life before they even met Jesus. They're going fishing, Yet Jesus, he meets them where they are, and he pronounces peace on them. And then it tells us what, how they react. And it reacts. they react in a way that we probably wouldn't expect. As a result of that, they were terrified, and they were afraid. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So Jesus, he's, he looks and he sees that they're terrified and he says, says, why? Why are you afraid? You know, They think he's some kind of ghost. He says, are, are you a spirit? And he's like, no, I have a body. I'm not a spirit, I'm not a ghost. And, and I love this exchange because Jesus, he had every right to rebuke them. You know, the, the Old Testament taught that this was going to happen. Jesus taught that this was ha- going to happen. You know, you tear this temple down in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. You know, and here he is, he's standing in front of them. Everything that he said was going to happen is happening and they're afraid. But instead of rebuking them, what, what he does, is he, he shows them his hands and they touched where the nails were. In the next few verses, it tells us what happens next. In 41, it says they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. It's kind of an kind of interesting phrase there. They disbelieved for joy. What does that mean? What does it mean that they disbelieved for joy? Well, they they had faith because they rejoiced after this. So we know that this doesn't mean that they disbelieved in the sense of faith, but rather what a number of commentators say is that what's going on here is that their joy was so excessive that it was a hindrance to their faith. Uh, one commentator puts it this way: He says they could scarcely believe their own senses of seeing and feeling. You ever felt like that? They could scarcely believe their own senses of seeing and feeling. So again, they think he's a ghost. He shows them his hands. He says, I'm not a spirit, I have flesh and bones. And then what he does, he asks them for something to eat. And this word here in Greek, it literally means anything edible. Do you have anything edible? You know, he's just looking for something to show them that he has a real body, saying, you know, if I didn't have a real body, could I do this? You know, and he eats this food. He eats this fish. And so he's showing them, he, he, he's not rebuking them, he's showing them that it's him. And so by seeing these things and hearing these things, it puts the apostles at peace. Their, their fears are comforted. And Jesus, he granted them peace in a time where they really needed it most. And he does the same for us, too. And we're gonna talk more about that at the end. But we've seen how Jesus grants us his presence when we feel most alone. And now we've seen how he gives us peace when we are peaceless. Look at our third point this morning. Jesus gives us perspective. In verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So when Jesus, when he says that these are my words, what he's saying is that everything that has happened is what I said would happen. Jesus' followers, they couldn't believe that what he said was going to happen. They couldn't believe that it could actually take place. So Jesus basically is saying, now you see what I said was true. And then Jesus, he affirms that all the Old Testament pointed to this and that it had to be fulfilled. Now, if we take a back view, or what is it, 50,000 look, view, feet view of Luke, one of Luke's main goals in writing the gospel is that you would see the fulfillment of Scripture as this major theme throughout Luke. Um, It's why we have Luke beginning with the birth of Jesus and all the way to his death, but also some genealogies there. Luke wants to show you that everything in the Old Testament was written about this guy. That Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament was about. And so here in Luke 24, um, Jesus is fulfilling everything everything that happened starting in Genesis one. It's all pointing to him. And so what Luke is saying by doing this and showing this is that this was God's plan from the beginning of time. Luke's made clear that it was God's plan from the beginning of time, that he would send his son to die on a cross for his people after they rebelled against him. So he fulfills scripture, It's, it's all connected. There's one strand, there's one story throughout the Bible. So Jesus, what he does then, he takes this opportunity to show them how the Bible points to himself. And he shows that there's a Messiah that would suffer and that he would be killed and then he would be raised from the dead. And so he gives them the perspective that they need to see the scriptures with. Uh, We look around Christendom today and there's so many different interpretations of scripture. There's so many different denominations. We need Jesus's perspective to see scripture. In verse 45, it says they open their minds to understand the scriptures. I want Jesus' perspective of scripture. You know, th- that is the right perspective of scripture. <laughs> um, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, Thus is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so just like he did with the two disciples in Emmaus or on the road to Emmaus, he does with all the apostles here. He opens their minds. He shows them what the Old Testament taught. And so in order to understand scripture, we must have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We we pray for this when we preach on Sundays that, that God would open up our eyes and our minds to understand the scriptures. We cannot understand it without the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we must pray that our minds too would be open to the Scriptures so we could see the things that Jesus wants us to see in the Scriptures. And so we also have in this section of the Scripture here a brief summary of what the Gospel is when Jesus brings up repentance and forgiveness of sins. Another commentator, he writes this. He says, No Christian teaching is scriptural and sound which does not give the principal place to these two great doctrines. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. They're central to the Christian doctrine. And so we're called to repent, and that repentance leads to the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 48, you're witnesses of these things. And this is the so what of Jesus' talk to the disciples. So why am I telling you all this stuff? Why am I opening the scriptures to you? Why does this matter to you Apostles, disciples, you followers of Jesus, why does this matter? So, everything that he has done has led up to this exhortation to share what they've seen. All right, they're to be his witnesses, they're to, they're to, you know, recount his deeds and his actions. Because now they know the truth beyond all doubt, it's their task to witness it to the world. Um, We're going to see in just a moment about Acts that they're called to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the world. Starts in Jerusalem, goes out to Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. That's their call is to be witnesses. But in order to be able to witness about Christ and about Jesus, we must have the right perspective. And they have it now. Jesus gives them the perspective to understand scripture, to know how everything in the Old Testament pointed to him, and everything in the New Testament comes after as a result of him. And it still points to Christ. It's one story all throughout scripture. So we've seen how he gives us his presence, he gives us peace, we've seen how he gives us perspective. Last, we're going to look at how he gives us power. Jesus gives us Power. Um, On Wednesday nights with the youth, we're going through Acts right now. And this is probably why I'm very interested in this passage, Luke 24. But Acts is also written by Luke. And these two books, they're very connected. Um, It's probably why I chose this passage. Like I said, in verse 49, we get the stage set for the book of Acts. So if verse 49 doesn't happen, then Acts doesn't happen. Um, Acts is like part two of this command here. Acts begins even with this same command. This is what Jesus says in verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So Jesus, he says that he's sending the promise of the father. What is that? What is, what is the promise of the father? Well, we know from scripture, from the Old Testament, also from Acts chapter 2, the promise of the father is the Holy Spirit. And so the Father, he promised the Holy Spirit that he would send him to us all the way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44.3 says, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Joel 2.28 says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Ezekiel 36.27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the promise of the Father that he's going to send his Holy Spirit to his people. And so when Luke, when he's writing Acts, one of the first thing that happens in the book of Acts is the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so it's through the Spirit that we can understand Scripture, but it's also through the Spirit that the disciples and the apostles, they were called to witness. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a second. Jesus says that, it tells them to stay in the, that he tells them to stay in the city until they're clothed with power from on high. So he's saying, stay in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost, until the Holy Spirit has been given to them. So this is the power that he speaks of. It's somehow connected to the Holy Spirit. You know, the power that he speaks of, it's not another name for the Holy Spirit, but rather it's what the Holy Spirit gives you. The Holy Spirit gives Power. And so I want to talk about this for a second because I think we sometimes understand, misunderstand the the Holy Spirit. We we often get wrong this person of the Trinity. And so right after this in Acts, in the very first chapter, there's two commands that are given in the first chapter of Acts. One is the one that we just read, stay in Jerusalem until Pentecost. But here's the second command in Acts chapter 1. And you will receive power. Notice the theme here. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's so very similar to Matthew twenty-eight: Go and make disciples, share the gospel, be my witnesses. And here's why this is so important: is because this is the mission of the church. This is the mission of the church. You know, I think we often get this wrong, what the mission of the church is. If you're like me, sometimes I think the church is there to serve me. Sometimes I think the church is there to do what I want to do. We think the mission of the church is about my happiness, or maybe it's a place for my friends and I to gather, or a place where I, where I feel things, or, or whatever we think the mission of the church is. The, the true mission of the church is to seek the lost. That's our mission. Yes, we exist to glorify God. Yes, we exist to preach and to to, to worship, but we also exist the mission to seek the lost. This is what R.C. Sproul says He says, To bear witness to the present reign and rule of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, and if we try to do it in our own power, we will fail. The reason for the outpouring of the Spirit is not to make us feel spiritual. It's not to give us a spiritual high. It's so that we can do the job that Jesus gives the church to do. We cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it on our own. John Calvin said that the task of the visible church is to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. That's our task, that is your task as a church. And so we have an incredible opportunity even here in Tupelo. You know, we're called to evangelize. And and, and here's the good news about this is that you cannot mess it up. We can't mess it up because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that works, not us. So if you're in Christ this morning, you've received this power of the Holy Spirit. You know, he does the work. He changes hearts. But we still have that calling to share the good news with people, to share and to seek the lost. And that's the mission of the church. We have a power that enables us to do so. I'll close real quick with four points of, quick points of application. Here's the first point. Some of these are going to be a reiteration of what we already talked about first point is that Jesus meets us in our moments of greatest need. Uh, He meets us in our moments of greatest need. And so he meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He meets us in the same way. Uh, Where we are, not where we ought to be. So I love the chorus of that great hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. It's very simple, but it says, I need thee, I need thee every hour, I need thee. Uh, We need his presence in our lives. And so Jesus, he, he meets that and he gives us his presence. Second thing, Jesus has patience with our doubts. Something I really want you to see this morning. If you're forgetting everything else, if you haven't been listening, tune into this. One of the questions that comes up most in my conversations that I have with fellow believers centers around Doubt. Uh, this class, this, this this past summer at RYM, I taught a class on how can I be sure I'm a Christian. I think over 200 students came, 200 people struggling with doubt in their faith. Maybe you have experienced doubts. What it comes down to is a, ultimately a question of assurance of salvation, but, but this is how the statement goes. It says, I believe, but sometimes I have doubts about Christianity. Therefore, I must not be a Christian. And so if this is you, or if it's ever been you, I want to propose to you that, that this is the posture, doubting, that this is the posture in which Jesus wants you to come to him. So Jesus, he, he has patience with our doubt. Think about this passage. Remember, everything that the scripture said said that this would happen. Everything that Jesus had been teaching him said that this would happen. Jesus told the disciples that he would die and that he'd be raised from the dead. And so what does Peter do? When Jesus dies, he says, I'm going fishing. He goes back to doing the very thing that he was doing before he met Jesus. Six other disciples they go and they join him. What did Thomas say when he told Jesus is risen? He says, I won't believe it unless I touch the holes in his hands. What did the disciples say in this chapter that we just read? We thought that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We thought that he was going to be the Messiah. How did Jesus respond to all these things? I I know how I would respond. I'd be like, hello, were you not listening? I told you this was gonna happen. How How could you think that it wasn't gonna happen when I told you this was gonna happen? I'm so angry and upset with you for doing this. But that's not at all how Jesus responds. He says to Peter, feed my sheep. He says to Thomas, put your hand in the holes in my hand. You know, just as he doesn't rebuke the apostles for their doubt, he doesn't rebuke you for doubting. Rather than rebuking, he grants this pronouncement of peace. And so we can go through periods of doubt in our lives, but it doesn't make you any less Christian. It doesn't make you any less saved by doubting. And so Jesus, what he does, he looks at the weary, at the doubting, at the anxious disciples, and he says, peace. Kind of like he's calming a storm. So how much more will he grant you peace in the midst of your own doubt? I trust that you'll find the answers to your doubt if you look for them. But he has peace and he has patience with you in the midst of your doubt. And that's how he wants you to come to him. Third point of application. When Jesus calls the apostles to be witnesses to the world, he also calls us. Uh, This is not just a command for the 12 or, or the few hundred disciples that he had. It's a command for you and me. Uh, It's not their task, it's our task. And we believers, we know the truth. And we're now tasked with sharing that truth to all. And so what does this look like? Well, a few years ago I saw a quote. It's very simple, but I think it's very profound. It's just four words. It says, found people, find people. Uh, If you've found a great treasure, oh, I want to go out and find people and share that treasure with them. You know, if you've been lost and now you're found, it should give us this desire to go out and find the lost. And so this can happen on mission trips, but it also happens every day. And we witness by the way that we act, by the people that we're with, by the way we live our lives. And we have a great opportunity here. Fourth thing, we must pray that we receive the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can do all these things. None of this matters if we don't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's kind of the central point here. Because it's through the Holy Spirit that we can be illuminated by Scripture. It's through the Holy Spirit that we can witness to the world. And so just as Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, let's ask for a double portion of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. And so we are in the same boat as the apostles. We struggle with unbelief. We struggle with despair. We struggle with discerning what does the Scriptures actually mean. And so here's the good news for you. Jesus meets you where you are and he provides for your needs. And so every need that the apostles and the disciples had here, Jesus met with an opposite and greater response. And so he does the same for us this morning. And so my question for you is, do you know this Jesus who provides for your every need?